Hello and welcome to the Monobank History of Scotland podcast, a series of comedy podcasts all about Scotland's history. Funny that, isn't it? Hey, I am Daniel, Daniel Downey. I am your host. I'm a stand-up comedian based here in Edinburgh in Scotland. And I have a thing that's called the Monobank Comedy Walk of Edinburgh. And what I do is I take people around the city, I tell them about the city, and I try and make them laugh at the same time. And the reason I'm telling you lovely people this is because that is what this podcast is. Uh, You will hopefully learn a wee bit today and you'll laugh a lot at the same time. Uh, The Monobank History of Scotland series is basically uh, an attempt at giving Scottish history the Montebank treatment. Uh, And today's episode is, well... It is the is the biggie, is the big one, uh, the most instantly recognisable and revered Scottish patriot of all time is going to take some time out to tell you about William Wallace. Yeah, see what I did there, see what I did there. Yeah, William Wallace, folks, uh, who was a minor knight, uh, not to be mistaken with one of Jeffrey Epstein's minor knights. Uh, there's a very, very different thing, Prince Andrew, calm down. Um, yeah, minor knight, a man who would come from relative obscurity to become the most revered and famous of all of Scotland's heroes. Just like uh, John Smito Smeaton, uh, who for anyone who doesn't know is the guy at Glasgow Airport who booted a flaming terrorist in the boz. That's how we do our heroes here in Scotland, or in Glasgow at least. Uh, yeah, so William Wallace, finally we've got to this stage. How exciting. Scotland's most recognised and famous patriot uh, and also, incidentally, a guy at my dad's work. So, if you're listening, Willie Wallace, big up yourself, hope you're doing well, big chap. And yeah, what else can I tell you? Basically, if this is the first time that you have listened to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, that, that's basically what you should expect, alright? It's, uh, I'm not going to lie to you, it's a lot of kind of Tory bashing and jobby jokes. If that sounds like your thing, then you're going to love it. What I would say is go back to episode one. Uh, I don't really talk about anything topical in the podcast. They all go in kind of chronological order. So if you listen to them in order, it'll help give you a wee bit of background for the one that, that comes after it. Uh, right, anyway, so without further ado, here we go, folks. Uh, part one of William Wallace. I do hope you enjoy the podcast. Uh, have fun out there, and I shall see you all on the other side. Enjoy! Most of what we know about William Wallace comes from three differing sources. There's the English-based official records and contemporary chroniclers, all of whom are vehemently anti-Wallace. Um, they, would co- they would continually refer to him as like, wee Jimmy Cranky, and they'd usually communicate through memes, and they seem to be completely unaware of how painfully shite their patter truly was. Um, the second source is the original Chronicle of Scotland by Andrew Winton, uh, or Andrew of Winton, written in the 14th century. And finally, the acts and deeds of Sir William Wallace by Blind Harry. Now, we don't know much about Blind Harry. In fact, we don't even know if he was blind, as there is no record of him visiting Barnard Castle, which is how you would traditionally check for these things. Uh, Blind Harry's book was more commonly known as the Wallace. It went through 23 editions before the active union with England in 1707, and afterwards it was modernised and adapted from Old Scots to make it more readable. The Wallace remained the most popular book in Scotland until the 19th century. It was the highest selling book in Scotland outside of the Bible, and it was the inspiration for the film Braveheart, uh, proving that books full of utter nonsense tend to be bestsellers. Although, to be fair, if that was the case, then the, the Tory manifesto 
should really have sold more copies than fucking Fifty Shades of Grey. Little is known about William Wallace's early life, mainly because he was of minor nobility, which meant that he was of little importance and had next to no standing with the ruling classes. I, I mean, well, with the exception of, of Prince Andrew, of course, because, you know, he obviously loved minors. Um, but Wallace, he, he would have been born in and around 1272, around the same time as Prince Philip. But there's little mention of Wallace until he raised his head in his mid-20s. Uh, and listen, there is nothing wrong, William, with uh, with waiting until your mid-20s before you, you raise your head. Do you know what I mean? Uh, that's, that's about the only thing that I have in common with William Wallace, that one there. Uh, even... Even his place of birth is uncertain. He, uh, William Wallace, he was the son of Malcolm Wallace of uh, Ellerslie, which could be the town of Ellerslie near Paisley in Renfrewshire, or uh, it could be the Ellerslie, Eldersley estate uh, near Kilmarnock in Ayrshire. Uh, although being of minor nobility in either Paisley or Kilmarnock, it probably just meant that he had, like, a satellite dish, you know, it uh, it really doesn't it doesn't take much to be considered nobility in either of the places, you know. Wallace fell foul of the English regime in Scotland early on. Uh, he was wanted for killing Shelby, the the overbearing son of the English constable of Dundee Castle, presumably for his shite, brammy accent and the fact that he whispered all the time. You know, he's like, Grace, Grace, I'm Thomas Shelby of the Peaky Blindness, and my character's thing is that I can only whisper. I mean, you can hardly you can hardly blame Wallace. Do you know what I mean? That gets pretty annoying. after after four seasons? Do you know what I mean? Uh, he is also said to William Wallace to have killed a couple of English soldiers who demanded that he hand over his catch on the Irvine Water. Although rumour is uh, that Wallace actually flipped when the Englishman suggested that he have gravy and mushy peas with it. Um, his exploits, William Wallace's exploits, that is. It really appealed to the people of Scotland who resented English dominance over Scotland and respected Wallace's defence of Scottish fish suppers. And you know what? Fish, uh, mushy peas and gravy, that sort of nonsense, it's, it remains out of Scottish chip shops to this day, although it is not known what William Wallace thought of chippy sauce. It's not on record. Now, if you're if you're listening to this and you know from Scotland, right, there's a very much a, an, an East Coast-West Coast divide in this country, right? Here in the East Coast... We, we don't do shite things the West Coast, like chips and cheese and all that pish that they do over there, right? But what we do have is we have a delicious thing. It's called chippy sauce, and it's like brown sauce with vinegar, and it is absolutely dynamite, and I reckon William Wallace would have loved it, and I'm willing to fight a Glaswegian over that, all right? Anyway, someone willing to, to kill overbearing English people in Dundee, uh, an Englishman who asked him for a chip, they was considered a hero, uh, not a maniac. And this remains the case in the west of Scotland to this day. And Wallace, he was gaining a reputation um, and news of his exploits were starting to, to spread throughout the country. Wallace was dedicated to the destruction of the English soldiers who had garrisoned Scotland's towns and castles. He was a, a fully-fledged guerrilla warrior, or mental case, depending on your point of view, I suppose, who with a band of hardened, disciplined followers would range the countryside attacking and ambushing Englishmen that he encountered along the way, which is why I imagine Mary Black will do when she eventually retires from politics. He would attack and capture castles and garrisons at will, collecting them like Pokemon. And Wallace, he was a born leader with charisma, bravery, a formidable physical presence who would wield his two-handed sword with ease. Now, 
It would at this point, right, be very easy to make a joke about his phallus, but all I'm going to say is this, ladies and gentlemen. Apparently, the Wallace Monument in Stirling is based to scale on the size of his boby. And it's uh, it's 67 metres tall. So I think you'll agree it's, uh, it's no wonder that the man is a national hero. William Wallace, he uh, married the beautiful heiress of Lanark, Marion Braidfoot. And uh, they, got, they got married in secret. Uh, presumably after learning that the average price of a Scottish wedding is 26 and a half grand. And in May 1297, Wallace was, was paying his wife, uh, who had recently just given birth to a daughter, a visit in Lanark. And he was in disguise. Now, I do like the idea of William Wallace dressing up for his wife. You know, I bet they were in all kinds of kinky shit back then. You know, like the real reason why William Wallace didn't submit to the English torture is because secretly he was enjoying it. Like a kind of early 14th century Christian grey, you know? And anyway, word got out of Wallace's presence in the town, and after some bloody fighting, Willa, uh, Wallace and his men, they managed to escape the town. Now, the English sheriff at Lanark Castle, Sir William Hesselrig, he took his retribution by having Marion seized and killed. Wallace and his men, they then re-entered the town that same evening, sneaking into the town in twos, like a stag do trying to get into a nightclub. And once they were in the town, Wallace took his furious, grief-stricken revenge in a coordinated attack in the castle. He and his men overran Lanark Castle, killing every Englishman in the garrison, and Wallace murdered Hesselring in his bed. Insurrection was now in the air. Wallace's actions had inspired widespread civil disobedience. He was kind of like Rosa Parks in that respect, I suppose. You know, except instead of refusing to give up a seat in the bus, Wallace, well, you know, he brutally murdered every Englishman in Lanark. But, I mean, it's basically the same thing, you know. Uh, and after the events of Lanark, a formal aristocrat or noble rebellion was being orchestrated by James Stewart, the steward, and Robert Wishart, the Bishop of Glasgow. And surprisingly, it included the young Robert Bruce, Earl of Carrick. Um, this was after he had sworn fealty to Edward, but he was involved after his father's opportunity to become King of Scotland had been snubbed by Edward after his victory at Dunbar in 1296. The rebellion, however, was a disaster. The nobles, they were surrounded by English forces in July 1297 at Irvine, and, and most of them were forced to renew their pledges of allegiance to Edward, including Robert Bruce. Basically, as, as soon as the, the top brass got involved, they bollocksed everything up. A far more notable and successful rebellion, however, was occurring at the same time in the north of Scotland, and it was led by Andrew Murray, the son of one of the barons of the, the common family. Basically, as usual, when the country was in desperate need of a, bit of, a, of a bit of success, it turned to Andy Murray. Now, both Andrew Murray and his father had been uh, taken prisoner by the English after the defeat at Dunbar in 1296, but Andrew, he managed to escape from Chester Castle and made his way north back to his, castle, his father's castle at Och in the Black Isle. And in the summer of 1297, he led a common rebellion in the north, taking back the English-held castles of Uckert Castle, Inverness Castle, Elgin, and Banff Castles. And soon, he had control of all of Murray and Aberdeenshire. Andy Murray, right, he escaped from prison, won back all of the major castles in the north of Scotland, and would go on to command the Scottish forces that defeated an English army for the very first time at the Battle of Stirling Bridge. And still, and despite that, Everyone remembers the other guys. William Wallace 
and Robert the Bruce. And to be fair, that is a very Andy Murray move. Because, like, William Wallace and Robert Bruce are basically just, like, Federer and Djokovic. Do you know what I mean? Andrew Murray was just unfortunate. He was playing during an era that had plenty of, of great Scottish heroes around. Do you know what I mean? Like, if he had come up during the, the, the Sampras century, then undoubtedly Andrew Murray would be right up there with your Wallace and your Bruce's. After Lanark, Wallace moved north to Schoon, where the English justiciar of Scotland, William Ormondsby, uh, was outlawing all those who refused to take an oath of fealty to Edward. On Wallace's approach, Ormondsby's troops faded away and he escaped to Edinburgh and then on to Northumberland. Scotland was now a rogue street. Bands of armed rebels, they roamed the countryside attacking English troops at will and the English troops, they were forced to withdraw to their castles and and garrisons, and they were effectively under siege. Edward at this point was making preparations for an expedition to fight in France. He instructed the Earl of Surrey, who had successfully commanded the victorious English army at Dunbar the previous year, and Hugh Cressingham, the treasurer of Scotland, to raise an army from the north of England to put down the insurrection in Scotland and give support to the greatest English stronghold in Scotland, which was Stirling Castle. Wallace, he abandoned the siege of English-held Dundee Castle and he moved to Stirling to intercept the English army. He sent word to Andrew Murray and they combined forces at Perth and marched to Stirling to prepare for the inevitable battle. Wallace and Murray, they took up position at Abbey Craig, which is where the Wallace Monument stands now. And from this point, they could see the English army approach. It consisted of around 200 knights and 10,000 soldiers, compared to the Scottish army's 36 cavalry and around 8,000 soldiers. Now there was to be no support from the nobility of Scotland for Wallace and Murray's army as most were either imprisoned or had been forced to swear fealty to Edward after surrendering at Irvine just weeks earlier. And on the eve of the battle, James Stewart and Malcolm, the Earl of Lennox, uh, who were attached nominally at least to Edward's army, they tried to parley with the Scots army, but, uh, but their offers of peace were rejected. Wallace countered them saying, Tell your commander we are not here to make peace, but to do battle, to defend ourselves and liberate our kingdom. Let them come on and we shall prove this in their very beards. Um, which I imagine when Wallace was riding back to his army, he was thinking to himself, ah, you know what, I nailed it there. That was great what I said. Right up to that bit about the beards. You know, like, why why the fuck did I say that? And Lennox and Stuart were just going back to the Earl of Surrey saying, ah, he says that, that we're here to do battle and then, I don't know, something about beards. On the 11th of September 1297, the Battle of Stirling Bridge was fought and won by the Scots. It was a decisive victory. As hard as it is, I know, to imagine some from Surrey getting their arse kicked in the Raploch, right? Um, but basically, the Earl of Surrey, on the eve of the battle, he told his men to cross the Stirling Bridge at dawn. Uh, and the next morning, the army, they began to cross the bridge. But they had to be called back as the, the, the lazy bastard Surrey was still in a, he was still eating his ready brick in Stirling Castle. Now, the bridge, it could only be crossed two at a time. Um, it was very, very narrow bridge and, you know, trying to get 10,000 men across it wasn't a particularly good idea. The crowds that would uh, amass there, they would result in, in thousands and thousands of deaths. You know, a bit like Soho on that super fucking Saturday, you know. Uh, so, aye, like I said, it was a daft idea to try and get 10,000 men over this this tiny, narrow bridge that had marshland either side of it and fast-flowing 
deep water underneath. Now, the Scottish contingent in Surrey's army, they'd urged him to, to have his army cross the River Forth further up, uh, where they could cross 60 abreast, and, and flank the Scottish army. But it was felt, however, that if they did this, the Scots would then retreat, and the war, which was already costing a lot of money, it would be prolonged. So the decision was taken to cross the bridge. Now, by about midday on the 11th of September, just less than half of the English army had crossed the bridge. The Scots army, they couldn't believe their luck. All they had to do was wait until just about enough of the Scottish army had crossed. Not too many and not too little. And then they could launch their attack. When the moment came, a horn was blasted and the Scots army, they came crashing down towards the bridge. Within half an hour, the English army had been cut to pieces or drowned in the Forth River. It was a slaughter. It was an annihilation. Surrey ordered that the bridge be broken and burned down to stop the Scots' pursuit as they retreated to Berwick. And James Stewart and the Earl of Lennox, they quickly turned coat and they attacked the English retreating, retreating baggage train, plundering a considerable amount of cargo. Surrey... He'd, he had embarked on this disastrous strategy that resulted in the deaths of thousands of English people purely to save money. You know, because it is better to have people back working and dead as opposed to, to taking any kind of hit on the old purse strings. You know, it was, it was very much the, the herd immunity of its time. It was an incredible victory for the ragtag army of the Scottish resistance that had had no noble support. The legend of English invincibility had been smashed by Wallace and Murray in under an hour, but it was, it was not as fantastic a victory as it may seem. The Scots had not faced the full might of the English war machine, which was in France fighting, and importantly, they had not faced Edward, you know, because he was kind of like the, the travelator, you know. And Wallace and Murray, after the Battle of Stirling Bridge, they were now de facto joint rulers of Scotland. They were head of the community of the realm, working under the name of the deposed King John Balliol. Murray, however, in classic Andy Murray style, he had got injured in the battle. And people from all over Scotland, they rallied to the cause of Wallace and Murray, including, at last, some of the Scottish nobility. In November 1297, however, Andrew Murray died. Wallace was now a, a dick without a dom. He was left to be sole ruler of Dabungalow. He led an unruly um, mob into the into the north of England, into Northumbria and, and Cumbria on raids like a, a Bathgate stag do in Newcastle, hell-bent on vengeful and violent pillage. Only fierce snowstorms in the winter of 1297 stopped Wallace's raids on the north of England. In March 1298, Wallace's position as leader of Scotland was made official. He was knighted and given the title Guardian of Scotland and leader of its armies in the name of King John and by consent and assent of the nobles of Scotland. The nobles, however, we're not going to accept a young minor nobleman leading the army. That was the role of the nobility, most of whom regarded Wallace with contempt and jealousy. Wallace, and Wallace basically wasn't one of the, the soggy biscuit class. You know, far better to have some bumbling, mumbling, incoherent, xenophobic Oxbridge type as opposed to someone, you know, actually qualified to do the job. Most of the nobility had estates in England as well as in Scotland, and so self-preservation was on their mind. The powerful King Edward in the South was, to them, a safer bet than Wallace's 
independent Scotland. Edward extricated himself from his war with France in March 1298 to address the embarrassment of the English forces at Stirling Bridge and to deal once and for all with the rebel who had dared to usurp his power in Scotland. He moved his capital to York and in May 1298 he summoned a war council. Now the Scottish nobles who were called to that war council, they quite sensibly made their excuses not to attend and as such they were given notices of forfeiture. On the 3rd of July 1298, Edward, he crossed the border at Coldstream with a huge army that consisted of 1,500 mounted and battle-hardened knights and 12,000 troops. In preparation, the Scots, they had devastated their own lowland food stocks in a kind of lockdown, scorched earth policy that left Edward's men with no hand soap, sanitizer or bog roll. And so Edward's army, they were starving and they had to wait at Kirk Liston for ships with provisions, most of which didn't arrive in account of poor weather. Their morale was low. And Edward, he had no idea where the Scots army were and, and what they had planned. They could even be invading England as he was in Scotland chasing them. And he was about to take his army to Edinburgh to feed and calm his troops with an overpriced pint and a crepe in the grass market. When on the 21st of July he got word from two Scottish earls, the Earl of Dunbar and the Earl of Angus, that Wallace's army was in Falkirk. So Edward, he camped at the Burmure south of Linlithgow and had his men in a, a state of battle readiness through the night in case they were attacked. Wallace, he had wanted to avoid pitched battles, so Edward knew that he might make a surprise attack through the night. So he had his knights sleep with their huge stallions tethered at their sides. And Edward himself, he actually injured himself on his charger through the night, breaking two ribs. He was 60 years old, mind, and rumours, they were rife amongst his troops that he was dying. But in the morning, he put on his armour and he sat upright on his horse and he gave the order for the army to move on and to engage the enemy at Falkirk. Now, if Edward's army had stayed in Edinburgh, it would have been far better for William Wallace because it meant that he could ambush them in the city and he could use his guerrilla tactics. And, you know, plus he'd have Begbie there to help him out. Um, but with Dunbar and Angus grassing him up, it now meant that a pitch battle at Falkirk was inevitable. On the morning of the 22nd July 1298, a patrol of Scottish spearmen could be seen on top of a hill to the southwest of Falkirk. A detachment of English troops were sent to engage them, and when they got to the top of the hill, the men, they were gone. Now, local legend says the leader of that battalion was none other than William Wallace himself, and the boulder he stood on, which is no longer there, was known as the, the Wallace Stone, and the village that exists there to this day is now imaginatively known as Wallace Stone. Now, despite the unwillingness of the nobility to support him, Will, uh, William Wallace, he was able to cut through the feudal system of duty to your master, and he was able to train a standing army of regular people who had flocked to him. But Wallace's army, it lacked the heavy cavalry that the English had. Its greatest strength were the shilterans. Now, these were oval formations of massed spearmen arranged kind of like a hedgehog. They were outnumbered at least two to one, and they lacked not just the numbers, but the military power of the English army. There was a small Scottish cavalry force under the command of Sir John Common, the, the Red Common of Badenoch. And before the battle, Wallace is, uh, he apparently said to his shilterans, I brought you to the ring, now dance if you can. Um, which doesn't really sound that Wallace-esque, to be honest with you. You know, it sounds more like a shite dance group on Britain's Got Talent that's resigned to its fate. 
you know, rather than a kind of rousing battle cry. The Scots Shilterns, they were able to repel the English cavalry charge and morale was high amongst the Scots army after repelling the charge of the famous heavily armoured English cavalry. But then, inexplicably, the Scottish cavalry left the field of battle just at the moment when their involvement could have turned the battle in the Scots' favour. Now, it remains a mystery why they actually did this, whether it was just cowardness or, more likely, Edward had got to them with bribes of land, money, titles. Either way, the Scottish army stood little chance without their support. The Scottish Shilterns, they continued to repel the attacks of the English cavalry, and so the English, they turned the attentions to the Scots archers, who now, without cavalry support, were exposed. And despite an incredibly brave stand from their leader, Sir John Stuart, the Scots archers were wiped out. The turning point came when Edward's archers, undisturbed by cavalry attacks, they were able to unload their new weapon, the longbow, which had been invented by the Welsh and had been used against Edward in his conquering of Wales. Now, this was a weapon that would have huge impact, not just on Edward's uh, wars in Scotland, but in France as well. The use of the longbow managed to create gaps in the shilterings, uh, which the English cavalry were then able to come in and, and clear out and exploit. The Scottish army was completely annihilated. The Scottish nobility... They had cowardly abandoned the cause of independence from England for their own selfish self-interests. But, you know, still, they turned up at Murrayfield and sang Flower of Scotland the following February as if nothing had happened. The defeat of the Scots army at Falkirk was as total as their victory had been at Stirling Bridge. Wallace had lost loyal, key supporters in the battle, people such as Sir John Stuart and Sir John Grahamston, his trusted, devoted second-in-command and a local hero of the battle whom a part of, of uh, Falkirk is named after today. But the Battle of Falkirk, fought on the 22nd of July, 1298, yes, it was a shattering defeat, but it wasn't a humiliation. I mean, at the end of the day, they're used to defeats in Falkirk, you know? Wallace, he had given great pride to the resistance. This was fuel that would feed the fire that ensured Scotland's survival in the future. And he had done it without the support of the Scottish nobles and having lost his joint commander, Andrew Murray, who was said to have tempered Wallace's enthusiasm with his strategy and tactical skill. Scotland was defeated, annihilated even, by the English army, but there was no humiliation. Wallace had made the bravest of brave stands. He inspired pride and resistance, and it would be the blueprint for centuries of glorious defeats to come. Glorious defeats being as recognisably Scottish now as tartan and bagpipes. You know, it's what we do best. So that brings us to the end of the podcast. Thanks so much for listening, folks. I hope you really enjoyed it. Um, be sure to tune in next week where you get the second part of William Wallace. If you would like to support this podcast, you can buy me a cup of coffee at buymeacoffee.com. You'll get me on there at Montebank History of Scotland. And if you've listened to a few episodes and you're enjoying the series, please consider becoming a, a patron of the podcast. You can get me at patreon.com. Again, just at Montebank History of Scotland. Anything you can give me is really, really appreciated. If it's one, two, three quid, whatever. It's uh, It really, really does mean a lot when I get that through. So thank you. Uh, what I try to do each week is I try to match the podcast with a malt whiskey in Scotland. And if I can raise enough money through my Patreon and buy me a coffee accounts, then I send someone a bottle of that whiskey. Someone deserving, like a, a key member, an NHS 
staff worker, or a patient, parent, or just a thoroughly sound person who you think deserves a nice bottle of whiskey. You can nominate someone to receive a bottle of Montebank whiskey uh, by leaving a comment through the Patreon or Buy Me A Coffee accounts, or you can get me on social media at Montebank History of Scotland. Leave a comment, uh, email me, DM, whatever, and I pick someone out randomly if I can raise enough money, that is. So please consider giving me a couple of quid so I can do that and do something nice for someone. Uh, right, so the whiskey that I've chosen to fit with William Wallace, uh, which I think is quite fitting, is Glenlivet. And uh, I think that's probably because it is, I would say, the most instantly recognisable of Scotch malt whiskies, and William Wallace is the most instantly recognisable of Scottish historical characters. Um, and it was, you know, it was... Glen Livett that really pushed the huge boom in the whiskey industry and in the kind of kind of through the Victorian times in the early twentieth century as well. Uh, whiskey blends they would put the word Glen Livett on their label to indicate that that bottle came from that particular part of the world. So everyone was trying to play off of the Glenlivet brand. And in 1822, when uh, George IV visited Scotland, he was the one that asked Walter Scott for a drop of the Glenlivet, which, remember, at that time was still uh, illegal. It was illegal still in the north of Scotland. It was actually Glenlivet, the first of the Scottish distilleries to get a to be granted a legal license in 1823. It is a, an institution. Uh, it's a very drinkable, light dram, and I think it fits well with our other great um, Scottish institution, William Wallace. Uh, so two things that we definitely sell our country on: Wallace and. And whiskey, right? Anyway, I'm rambling now. So anyway, thank you so much for listening, folks. Um, again, remember, follow me on the social media. I've got a YouTube channel as well, uh, just at Montebank History of Scotland on YouTube, where I do little uh, videos. Follow me on uh, Instagram and all that kind of stuff, uh, at Montebank Tours. And if this is the first time you've listened to podcasts, go back and listen to a few more. It's the same thing. You'll enjoy it. Same shit. Uh Cool. And I hope to see you all next time. Thanks very much for listening. Cheerio!